This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Ann Jones and this is Off Track, the ABC's program of nature delights. This week, Off Track producer Joe Kahn is taking you on a bit of a hunt for a big predator that's found a home in the bushy outskirts of Melbourne. It's funny, no matter how many times you do this, there's no... It, it is intimidating holding one of these things, eh? I mean, it looks quite small in the hand in a sense, but actually yeah. when they're sitting above you, they're a huge bird, eh? Oh, shit, just give us a sec. I'll just try and find her wings. There we go. Beanie's still on. <laughs> We could be at in the middle of the bush, but we're actually only 25 kilometres northeast of Melbourne as the crow flies. This place is the suburb of Warrandyte. Just watch your footing around here. um, There's rocks with big crevices across there, so. So dry out here at the moment. Associate Professor John White is a wildlife ecologist at Deakin University in Melbourne. We're walking through the scrub and up into a pine forest. A golden whistler is calling in the background and we're looking for Australia's biggest owl, the powerful owl. Owl vomit. Obviously spent a lot of time here. You know, just all that sort of white, that white there. Yeah. The white spike there. And all, all of these little bits, you know, these grey bits are all just yeah. vomit. The white bits are poo. One of the size of that pellet. That's a, you know, regurgitated so pellet. So the vomit. Yeah, so it's the bones and the fur that, of whatever the hell they happened to have eaten, so. It looks like what I out of my vacuum sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, minus the bones. (laughs) But yeah, that's, I mean, there's some huge pellets there and things. Yeah, there was a pellet I found yesterday with some beetle exoskeletons on it. So yeah, they eat all sorts of things, whatever's abundant at the time. Well, we better get set up. Yeah, I agree, Nick. Nick Bradsworth is a PhD student investigating Melbourne's urban powerful owls. All the owl vomit and poo suggest that they are here, even though we couldn't spot them roosting in the tall plantation pine trees. Nick, John and their volunteer Adam aren't just here to look for the owls, they want to catch one and put a GPS tag on it so that they can follow its movements around Melbourne's fringe. Unsurprisingly, it's quite difficult to catch an adult powerful owl. They can get up to 1.6 kilograms and have talons that could cut bone. But Deakin University ecologist and research team leader Raylene Cook has been practising for the last two decades. I started working on powerful owls in my honours year back in 1995. They're a big bird and they're sort of browny white in colour. They've got the chevrons on the chest. They also are characteristics of the ninox, which the powerful owl is a ninox owl, um, is the bright yellow eyes. The talons are huge. They're basically sort of the size potentially of a small child's hands and trying to handle them, they are very terrifying. 
my first trip out to actually look at them, we knew that there was at least one bird out at Warrandyte. And so it was sort of, let's go out and see if this bird's got a partner, which that bird did. And so that turned out to be a breeding pair. And at that stage, we were interested to know what they eat. So there's sort of been a lot of photos and I guess history showing that they had possums as their sort of their main diet. And we know that they eat about 250 to 300 of them a year. So in terms of the actual catcher, they will swoop in um, with their talons, they'll grab the, the neck, they'll break the neck, and they usually eat the head first. Okay, so what you then see quite often the next day is a bird sitting in the tree, uh, an owl sitting in the tree with the, um, the headless possum basically sitting up in the branch. What the team really want to find out now is how the owls move in the highly fragmented urban landscape which means they need to follow the owls and they need to catch and tag them. And this requires a large net to be set up. So what is John doing with the, the bow? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, we do get some very funny looks as we're walking into urban reserves in Melbourne. Uh, but John had just fired a arrow with fishing line attached to it. And the fishing line it is just our first line that goes over. They shoot the lines into the canopy of two tall eucalypts on either side of the drainage channel we're standing in. Once the lines go over, one end is attached to a corner of the net and the other to a fishing reel and line. When the net is hoisted up using the pulley system, it's about 12 metres across and 8 metres high. We really try and cover off the canopy as best as we can because they're canopy foragers. They'll move through the canopy to, to hunt for prey. And if we can get it to that height, then they're unlikely to go over the top. The owls love to perch on some of these dead open branches that you can see up there and behind us as well. So basically we'll have megaphones perpendicular to the net and quite close into the net as well because we don't want them to fly too far um, past the net. So we'll try and encourage them into some of these trees here which are about 10 metres next to us and those movements should hopefully intersect with the net. So as you can see it's quite an impressive sight once it's up. We still just need to tinker around a little bit with these corners and finessing little things just before sunset can mean the difference between catching an owl and not. The net is lowered back to the ground until it gets darker. All we can do for the moment is watch and wait. Over the years studying powerful owls, Raylene Cook has figured out exactly what they need in order to call a place home. They essentially need three main things to inhabit an area. So they need a, a nest tree, a roost tree and something to eat. Because they're a nocturnal bird, they um, do all their hunting and most of their activity during the night time, which means during the daytime they're sitting and they're in what we call a roost tree. They don't need a tree hollow to roost in, unlike other Australian owls. A lot of them do roost inside a hollow or a cavity during the daytime. Powerful owls are actually out in the open and so you can see them during the daytime. And their roost trees can be sort of anything that provides enough structure for them. They love the natives, they love the, the wattle trees and they love the, 
the eucalypt species but in saying that they also use introduced species as well quite often they've been things like pines and willows and stuff like that as well in terms of the nest trees they need a hollow that is big enough that will have the mum the female inside plus hopefully two babies and so these hollows we find are usually around about a meter in depth they're in eucalypt species how hard is it for them to be able to find a eucalypt with a hollow that big? It's pretty tough in the urban areas and so um, that I guess you sort of go back through time and with so much development that's happened throughout our urban areas we've cleared a lot of those big old trees so we find that the ones that are remaining are in our riparian strips okay and they're sort of very common along places like our Yarra rivers along our waterways. A riparian being riverbanks that yes. sort of habitat? Yes yep along the, the riverbanks which is sort of those areas have been protected through time and so they're the areas that still have some of these big old trees in them it's, they are an essential element for powerful owls for survival and so it's sort of really important that we sort of can maintain these trees as best we can. You're listening to Off Track. I'm Jo Khan. And today we're waiting for a big bird that still lurks through Melbourne's suburbs and city. The powerful owl. They might be living here, but Associate Professor Raylene Cook doesn't think they're thriving Part of what we're sort of looking at now is the genetic side of powerful owls because we're finding that they are popping up in urban areas but they're not necessarily breeding. Okay, and so in some situations they are breeding but in most situations it might be a pair but they're not actually breeding. And so our closest known breeding pairs to Melbourne CBD are still around about that 20 kilometres out. These birds are popping up in places like Botanic Gardens in those inner city parks. As far as we're aware they're not, they're non-breeding birds. And that's probably due to the lack of a suitable nesting tree? Yes, I believe so. And so you sort of go, if you tick off what they need, they need a possum. And we have lots and lots of possums across Melbourne, so we can sort of, I think, safely say that we're, they're OK food-wise. And we do have some fantastic pockets of, of native vegetation and um, structural vegetation which would provide roosting habitat for them. A big limiting factor is our nest trees. What's stopping them from moving into a different area to find a nesting tree? They're territorial and so that sort of means that they pair up with a mate and they pair up with that mate for life and so they're unlikely to up and just move to somewhere else um, because they're holding down that particular territory. They've gone in thinking that oh, we've got enough food, we've got enough habitat, we've got everything there. Oh, hang on a minute, we can't breed. And so that's sort of um, what this whole concept of the ecological trap. And so um, places like Melbourne that have a good supply of possums um, potentially act as ecological traps for these guys. Once the sun drops behind the hills of Warrandyte and the hazy blue sky fades to a pinky grey, the insects come out and Nick gets his owl-catching game face on. As the net gets hoisted up, Nick explains what he hopes will happen. Usually just grab it with its wings around the side of the body and we just keep a watch of where the beak and the talons are because they'll go through bone if you're not careful. I'll be carrying a little bag and in that bag has there's a beanie. So one of the first things we do when we catch an owl is we put a beanie over its head and it completely calms it. It also takes the beak out of the equation. <laughs> We'll just put out these sequence of calls now for a while, just to, if the birds are around, um, just to alert them to us being here. And hopefully what that does is the first flight of the night's in our direction as opposed to away. With two megaphones pointing out into the bush in opposite directions, Nick plays a selection of powerful owl calls into the night, hoping to attract the residents. 
and then you know during the night we might muck around with different calls so you know a couple of weeks ago these guys were sort of still had chicks with them but they, they really should be gone by now so um they then become responsive to the calls of chicks because they don't want chicks in their territory. They're about to start now getting sorted out to go into this year's breeding season, so they're actually actively chasing their chicks away. I feel like a lot of people could relate to that. Oh, yeah, I know. It's like it's the empty nest, the type thing. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, these guys actually have to, yeah, physically get rid of their kids before they turn one. So, well, well before they turn one. And the kids are pretty, you know, the chicks are incredibly demanding on them too. You know, they're flying around, squealing after them, trying to get possum off them and things. While the adult powerful owls are one of the few owls to make a typical hoot hoot call, the chicks make what is called a trill. This is a recording of a chick call that Nick is playing at into the bush. But soon, Nick thinks he can hear a real chick nearby. It's way up the back there somewhere. Okay. I've heard it two or three times. I was questioning myself. Oh, right. Yeah, male. Oh, yeah, male. So the chicks are around here somewhere, and the male adult is calling. It's not long before the owls fly in our direction. Oh, coming across... Uh, that'll be an adult. So that's great. We've got both adults really close by with the nets set up. The male is calling. There's a chick calling. It's all happening. <laughs> but that's what we want. We want to get their interest nice and early. Males just come in right above us. Very interested in the calls. God, they're huge. Yeah. So we're playing the calls nice and quiet because the owls are so close. We don't want them to fly too far away. Just trying to encourage them to fly basically from one tree to another. Oh, straight over the top, the female. <laughs> you can just hear one of the adult owls call in response to the playback. <laughs> Chick's still up there, which is interesting. The owls just sit there, looming over us in the darkness, listening to the different calls Nick is playing through the speakers. Yeah, she's preening. She's looking between the male and the speaker. And then finally, she flies towards the net. Yes, drop. Um, just yeah. helping me with the plant, please. Um, beanie okay, in my beanie bag, someone. Adam, can you reach into the beanie? 
and pop your head torch on if you can, please. We're probably going to want to go eventually. Oh, no. um, Wait, sorry. She's. That's. So uh, she flew into that's... that side, right? So she's going to come out that way, isn't she? I'll just, just get help this on to. Well, just um, the. That's uh, just on our eye. Somehow, yeah, maybe just, just across her beak. Okay. Yeah, if we can release some of that tension, yeah, Adam, trying. if you can help with the other talon, please. Yeah. Just, just be really. She's pulling it. Oh, damn! Oh, chick. Huh? No. What was that call? That was just a. Okay. And the beanie on, please. Sorry. That is the biggest bake. What's wrong? Oh. <laughs> She's really, really strong. Strong. You okay? Yeah. She's just. Do you want me to bring no, no. things to you? Yeah, well, where do you want me? Oh, you've got um, a seat up set there. up, have you? Sorry. Yeah, seat up, yeah. That sounded desperate, didn't it? They managed to catch a particularly powerful, powerful owl, and it did take a little while to untangle her and her talons from the net. John sits in a camping chair and holds the owl while Nick prepares to attach the GPS tag. The owl is so beautiful up close, and even though I'm not holding her, I can feel her strength as she moves and contracts her claws. The light brown beanie is sitting gently over her head, and I can just see her long, dark beak when I peek up under the beanie. Wow, she was a very, she, for a female, mm. an incredible, usually I, I would have sworn from her behavior, she's male. You know, for yeah. the few that have been really, really strong and mm. and going at it like that. You can see the length of those tail feathers. Uh, you know, for that aerial that's coming down, it's their long, long tail feathers. And they're fairly new, unfortunately, which means she's going to hold this. Um, I'll take the bag time. off. Yeah, but I haven't got her wings, that's all. Yeah. Just give us a sec, I'll just try and find her wings. There we go. Beanie's still on. <laughs> Alright. So, you know, she's one of Melbourne's urban powerful owls. Um, you know, she's a breeder, so she's, as you heard, there were, I think, still two chicks floating around when we were trying to call that in, and the, the male, so... And you can hear people's dogs barking over in the background, you know, we're, we're right off the back of the edge of suburbia here. Oh, those eyes are just spectacular. Yeah, yeah. You said there's two owls up there, I wouldn't have seen the owls at all. Mm. So what Nick's done is just turned on the um, radio transmitter component of this the thing, so he set the GPS up and programmed that before. That's the radio tracker on now, and that just allows us to find the bird 
you know, it's almost debatable whether they'll breed this year because they've kept their chicks around for so long that there's not a big gap. So these guys do one breed a year and it's done and dusted type thing. It's protracted. But, yeah, around the place, their start dates are quite different. But between pairs, they'll start on almost the same day every year. Mm. But they'll be a couple of kilometres down the road. They'll start three weeks later or something like that. But they'll traditionally just always do that unless they change partner. And then, yeah. it, then it might flick. So... Is that quite rare to change partner? No, well, I mean, you know, these these guys these guys are fairly long lived, and some of these territories. I mean, you know, Raylene when she started following these pairs, what twenty odd years ago, some of these territories that we're mapping oh, yeah, now are still the same areas that had breeding birds back then and have had breeding birds ever since. But there's no way it's the same birds. It's they've been changed over. We're just exposing the tail feathers now as the GPS device is attached to the two most central tail feathers. We try and get the tracker up as high as we can. You can really see how long those feathers are when, when you can see the body. There's that little oil gland right up the top there. That's oh. what they'll use to oh. um, preen their wings with, the oil and waterproof their feathers so we want to be away from that as well is that is that bone i mean no it's just that you can touch it if you want uh, no, I'm fine. it's like a fleshy um, uh, yeah definitely skin. no thanks <laughs> come on just put the chip it's funny no matter how many times you do this there's no it, it is intimidating holding one of these things eh? i mean mm. Because it actually looks quite small in the hand in a sense, but actually yeah. when they're sitting above you, they're a huge bird, eh? Hey? She's been weighed and measured, and Nick has carefully glued, tied and taped the small tracking unit onto the top of two of her tail feathers. It's time to let her go. Okay, I'm going to try it. Nick, what do you reckon? Can I get onto stable the ground? Maybe up into those trees there? Yeah, okay, cool. I'll need someone to take the beanie off, please. Yeah, so when you take the beanie off, just step sort of take of it off and step back, and then... So when? Yep. Yeah. Oh, I think you got that, John. So you can hear the, the signal on the receiver here. So the owl's still hanging around. Oh, there she is, yeah. <laughs> Sitting in the tree. She'll, she'll probably sit there for a little while. Um, she might have a pick at the tracker, have a preen, realign her feathers. <laughs> How far will she fly tonight? What type of route will she take over the trees and the houses? The research team are interested in her nighttime travels. When we look at our tracks through the landscape, they really do use creek lines, river systems, gully systems to move through the landscape. They may use three or four different patches of forest that are seemingly disconnected, except for, say, thin strips of trees along river systems, and they will then use those to join the dots. You know, we can see, even just on satellite imagery of, like, Melbourne, and then you plonk dots on a map, you can see where they stop. The minute the housing density gets too high, and the tree density drops away, they go. 
uh, well, they can't use those areas, and that's the biggest concern, I think, at the end of the day. With urban development going the way it is, that's where we're going to start having our biggest problems is maintaining these species within the urban landscape. Ecologist John White and the team are trying to figure out how we protect this mysterious predator in and around our cities as the native green spaces get smaller and smaller and the houses spread out into the bush. I'm Ann Jones and thanks for listening to Off Track. Make sure you meet me here at the same time next time because that's when I'll take you somewhere else. Oh, and thanks to Joe Kahn for getting up close and personal with a powerful owl. She's probably not really a bird person. Ready? Yeah. Smile at the camera. All right. Yeah, yeah. You oh, she's looking at me. Down. She's she staring at me. Okay, Joe, and get closer. <laughs> she's staring at me. No, she's <laughs> okay. It's it's apparently it's your fault, Joe. She likes me. She's gonna go. She's gonna go. Put it back on, quick, quick, quick. Did you get anything then? That's my terrified smile. (laughs) I'm having fun, but I'm a bit scared too. (laughs) You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.